So the reading this morning is from Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, and I'm reading from NIV. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Why don't we pray just before we uh, come back to those verses Heidi read for us. Father, we just pray the words that we've uh, sung there, that uh, you would speak to us from your word, that you would shape us, that you would mold us, you would fashion us, that, Lord, you would uh, speak into the inner being of us, Lord, that you would renew us in your image and refine us. We just pray that you might do that now as we turn to your word and as we turn it expectantly uh, and hungry, needing fed again, needing reminded again of the depth of your love and your grace for us. So Spirit, I pray that you might speak to us through these words and speak through me, I pray, uh, for your purposes and for our good we ask it. Amen. On the 28th of May 1972, the Duke of Windsor Former King Edward VIII, who had actually abdicated the throne after reigning for less than a year, died. And in the aftermath, uh, television replayed many old clips uh, of him and his family. And one interview with Edward uh, while he was still a prince was very revealing. He said, my father was a strict disciplinarian. Sometimes when I'd done something wrong, he would admonish me, saying, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. Paul has been asking, if we're saved by grace alone and not by anything that we do ourselves, then should we be bothered whether we sin thereafter? Does it really matter actually how we live after we've been saved like that? And so we might say something very similar about the Christian life, although we may tweak it slightly. We may say that Believer, we must remember whose we are. And that's 
Paul's point this morning that we're freed for a new master. That if you're tempted to go back and to keep deliberately sinning, then you need to remember whose you are. Paul asks here again, what then? Or so what? You might put it. And there's a slight change of emphasis for Paul. He's asked really the same essential question in verses 1 to 14. You're saved by grace, but what now? And 1 to 14 has answered that question of sin with the freedom that Christ has won. Why would you go back when he's won you a new life? Now he's going to answer the same sort of essential question by looking at how we're owned by Christ. The gospel frees us from the mastery of sin within us and over us that we might be free to follow Christ, our new master. That's Paul's key thought here. So let me show you here just those first couple of verses, verse 15 to 16. And what we see here is this essential truth that what you give yourself to owns you. What we make our lives about can actually end up taking over our lives. Culture knows this. You could look in many places, but... uh, How about this, the song Hotel California by the Eagles. This is a reflection on the sort of life of excess in Los Angeles in the 1970s. One point it says here, mirrors on the ceiling, the pink champagne on ice. And she said, we're all just prisoners here of our own device. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. Of all the places, of all the times in the world, surely this would be the place in which people would know what true freedom is really is and yet they reflect on the way in which it was a sort of self-imposed prison yeah I guess for most of you probably you've not sort of experienced the life of excess of a rock star but probably the most common experience of sin as a form of slavery is in consumerism giving ourselves over to stuff to things Paul has put it in chapter 1 verse 25 that people have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Author and philosopher Chuck Palahniuk explored this in his book Fight Club. Here's one sort of pep talk that uh, you'll see Brad Pitt delivering in the film. He says, we are consumers. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Murder, crime, poverty, these things do not concern me. What concerns me are celebrity magazines, television with 500 channels, some guy's name on my underwear. The things that you own end up owning you. Or John Mark Comer summarizes this for us in his book Live No Lies that we've been uh, looking at together on on, uh, Tuesday evenings. He says, we make our decisions and then our decisions make us. In the beginning we have a choice, but eventually we have a character. What you give yourself to owns you. So Paul says, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Or as we said before, it's a similar response to in verse 2, God forbid. It's emphatic. It might seem as though Paul is sort of circling back on himself. I mean, it's not as if uh, preachers ever do that, is it? But there's a different emphasis here. Last time, the thought was, If sinning further means that there's more to forgive, which means that uh, God shows more of his grace, 
which makes God look better again. Therefore, why not sin to gain more grace? If that's what it does. Now the thought is slightly different. The thought is, if what really matters is just grace, it's not my ability to meet the law, it's not my ability to do anything to extract love from God, so there's no punishment, why not sin because of grace? Last time, what was happening was they were repackaging sin as good. Sin actually might, in the end, be good because it just gives God more chance to forgive me and more chance to show his grace. Maybe, in a way, I'm doing him a favor. It's repackaging sin as good. Now, what's happening is actually, rather than repackaging sin as good, it's simply being remorseless for sin. If if there's no punishment, then why bother at all? And I hope you see that in both hypothetical questions... The person loves sin more than they love Jesus. Verses 1 to 14, Paul showed us we're united to Christ. So we should die to sin. We should rise to new life just as he did. Now in verses 15 to 23, he shows us we're owned by Christ to live for him and not sin. So he asks us again, do you not know? And now... He'll give his answer. But what Paul will show us is, as he always does, is that an issue of behavior, an issue of what you do with your hands, is addressed by changing what we believe. It's addressed by changing what we believe in our head. Do you not know, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, where they're obedient, it talks of hearing from below. A bit like the sort of image of, you know, Down below the sort of top decks, you get those who really are just obedient to the commands. Down in the basement, you get the servants in Downton Abbey. If you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, as the ones who give their ears over to another. And so the question just to ask briefly here is, who or what has your ear? Yeah, that's a challenging word, isn't it? Slave. That's a difficult word for us to hear. Difficult kind of imagery for Paul to use. Slavery, of course, is abhorrent. It's indefensible. It should be evident that it's not compatible with Christianity at all. I say that, and I think it's worth saying it, because sometimes Christians have been historically a part of the slave trade. For example, George Whitfield, premier evangelist of the first Great Awakening in America, was a slave owner, and more so was a key advocate for slavery being introduced in colonial Georgia where it wasn't actually allowed beforehand. In fact, you have whole movements that are based upon keeping slavery. The Southern Baptist Convention was created for those Baptists who wanted to keep slavery. So I think it's important, firstly, to be honest that things like this have happened at one time, haven't they? Second, to clearly state for the record that slavery is and was biblically and morally wrong. And thirdly, to avoid a situation where slavery could ever again possibly be seen as permissible. It's not. And so it's an imperfect metaphor. Paul recognises that, verse 19. I'm, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Nonetheless, it's a metaphor he uses. He uses it probably in part because it's familiar for them. 
Some estimates uh, believe that around 35 to 40 percent of the population in Rome were slaves. So it's a piece of imagery and an idea that is familiar for many. In fact, one commentator uh, writes about this, that people in dire poverty could even offer themselves as slaves to someone simply in order to be fed and housed. And this is the kind of slavery that Paul has in mind, that we've volunteered ourselves as slaves to sin, and that Jesus has bought us out of that, but that we're now owned by him. No one... But no one thinks they have done that. So how? How does this happen? How can Paul say this? Because nobody believes that they're enslaved to sin. Uh, Leslie Jameson, author, philosopher, writes this in her book, The Recovering. It documents her own struggle with addiction and efforts to get clean. She says, addiction is always a story that has already been told because it inevitably repeats itself Because it grinds down, ultimately for everyone, to the same demolished and reductive and recycled core. Desire, use, repeat. John Mark Homer, again in Live No Lies, reflects on this. He says, it turns out that sin makes people the same. When we give in to our flesh, we devolve to a remarkably unoriginal baseline. Desire, use, repeat. Now listen to how he sums that up. We call it addiction. Jesus and Paul called it slavery. It's a hard piece of imagery because nobody really believes that they're ever slaves to anything. In fact, sin promises the opposite, does it not? It promises you that you'll be free. That you'll feel good. And it never delivers the promise, does it? It never delivers what it says it will. Thomas Watson, a Puritan father, reflects on this. I I have a very big library at home, in in part because I've inherited a lot of uh, my dad's books. Uh, The sad reality is that the actual percentage of those that I've read to ones that are on the shelf is is underwhelmingly low. Uh, And some of them really are are more props uh, than, than anything. Uh, But I take some comfort in that I'm pretty sure my dad didn't get anywhere near through them either. I think they were pretty much props for him too. Um, But over sort of last summer, one of the ones that I stumbled upon was a little bit by Thomas Watson on the Beatitudes. And he's writing about riches, but really this could be about sin. He says, riches are but tinned over. They're like alchemy. Riches are but sugared lies, pleasant impostures like a gilded cover which has not one leaf of true comfort bound up in it. It's a much more eloquent, pretty way of saying sin never delivers what it promises. Promises much, delivers little. Here's the reality. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, verse 16 continues, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience to righteousness. And don't you know that feeling, like me? Haven't you been there? Something that you know is wrong, but you can't get out of your head. That seems to have a life all of its own. 
Sin doesn't have the same power to rule over us, but it has a power to tempt, has a power to entice. But how does it do that? Let me give you three pictures, I think, of how sin does this. Firstly, it's like a siren song. You know, from Greek mythology, the sirens who would be there on the rocks and who would sing so sort of beautifully and enticingly, just leaving ships to ruin on the rocks. Sin has a way of calling to us and making something sound so appealing and so alluring. It offers it to feel so good. It's like a siren song. But secondly, it does it through repetition. And this somewhat depends on on you sort of, I suppose, being my age or older. (laughs) Perhaps if you're younger, you might not remember Father Ted. This is Mrs. Doyle, who just simply would not take no for an answer uh, for a cup of tea for Father Ted and Father Dougal. Sin is a repeated bombarding at us, saying, go on, go on, go on, go on. It's like a siren song. It's repeated, but it's also like a sales pitch. It's like the tap they try to flog you on the shopping channel. By the end of the pitch, you end up agreeing. Yeah, how have I ever survived without a spiralizer? I just hope that my dinner guests have not realized that I've not been spiralizing their vegetables and fruit for them. How classy would my sort of dinner parties look with a spiralizer? And then you realise a couple of months later when you've used it twice that they've mugged you right off. But somehow in the moment it seemed like the thing you needed to be complete. Sin has something of a power to it. It's not about whether we're slaves, but who we're slaves to and what it leads to. Whatever you give yourself to, that's your time, your money, your emotions, your body, your mind, owns you. So give yourself to God in obedience, not sin that leads to death. We are, as pulpits here, to be slaves to Christ. Where there is doulos, bond servants. It's one of the four most used titles for the church and for believers throughout the New Testament, along with family, disciples, and witnesses. And it's the number one term that Paul uses of himself and of anybody in some form of ministry. It's a core identity for us that we're Jesus' servants. So then, there's a decision for us to make. Will we give ourselves fully to God? What you give yourself to owns you. But secondly here, we see a change of ownership. And we see the sort of changed results of this. Uh, One of the most beautiful pictures I think we get of this, of a new owner coming in and taking something that has been somewhat broken and fallen apart and then turning it into something beautiful, is in the restoration of buildings. And we see the difference uh, in the results from each ownership. Sin always leads to decay and destruction, while God always leads to flourishing. We see that here. This is uh, one particular architectural project called Casa Sabugo in Spain. And inside the sort of ruins of the old building there 
you have then the beautiful new structure that's been constructed around it. And so what they've wanted to do is not only have the nice new home, but also highlight the original building too. A building that was falling apart, that had no life in it, that was destined for destruction, now has life breathed into it. Although you can still see the brokenness of the old order. There was once an owner that allowed this beautiful building to be neglected and damaged. And now there's a new one who from out of that shell of the old has created something beautiful. And really, this is Paul's point here in verses 17 to 19. That Jesus, our new owner, has built something beautiful out of our brokenness. And so Paul makes a significant change here in the language You may or you may not see that, but I'll let you in on it anyway. That he shifts from imperatives, that is like sort of commands and advice, to an indicative, to a statement. But thanks be to God, verse 17 tells us, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. God has stepped in. The solution is always that God rescues us from our calamity, from our disaster that we bring on ourselves and that we can't save ourselves from. You who were once slaves to sin. There's a statement. You are no longer slaves. It's also in the past tense. You were once slaves, but no longer. You who were once slaves to sin have become obedient. The same word, by the way, there is verse 16. If you present yourselves as obedient slaves, we have become obedient from the heart, from our inner core. Something amazing has happened for all of us in Christ. Whether you feel like that or not, we have become obedient to righteousness. Only God could do that. Only God could undo our rebellion. And yet, there's more to it, because this isn't just a begrudging duty. This comes from the heart, because our very heart has changed. So, a couple of simple questions for you. Do you listen to your father's voice? Do you listen to your father's voice? And do you want to obey him? Then, dear Christian, a miracle has occurred within you. God, by his spirit, has opened your eyes. He has awakened your conscience. He has softened your heart. He's realigned your desires. But how does this happen? Paul tells us here, verse 17, that we've been handed over to the standard of teaching to which you are committed here. And the word committed there is handed over means from close beside, being given, being turned over. It's a word that would maybe most aptly sort of describe the process of someone being handed over into prison or handed over out of prison into freedom. It's a word that we've encountered before in our journey through Romans. And the context of that is really, really important. Paul uses this word three times in chapter one when he's speaking about the uh, unrighteousness and ungodliness of the world for which the world is facing God's just wrath. He says God gave them up, God handed them over, the same word, paradokian, 
in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. In verse 26, he said, God gave them up, again the same word, to dishonorable passions. And then again in verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Paul, each time there, is thinking about those outside of Christ who are giving themselves to sin. And this process of God actually eventually giving them over to their sin. So that at a certain point, a point we don't and we can't know, if you keep pursuing sin, God may just give you what you want. And rather than, at least to some extent, graciously restraining you, he finally leaves you to it. But now, as Paul uses this same word here, that we're handed over to a standard of teaching here, to a pattern of teaching, here is the opposite of that. That for those who are his, he gives us over to his teaching, the gospel. It's this teaching that serves to keep us in custody and produce obedience. The gospel that Paul has said is the power of God for salvation to all that believe. Chapter 1, verse 16. So think about this. If, if you were Jewish receiving this letter here, and one of the reasons the letter is written is this sort of struggle between those who've come to Christ from a sort of Jewish background and then a lot of people who've come to Christ from a pagan background and trying to understand, well, what place is there sort of now for all of this sort of heritage and the law from the past? If you're Jewish, you're probably thinking, well, how can Christians be righteous without the law, without something to refer to to show them what righteousness looks like and to constrain them and restrain them. Paul's point is the gospel. The gospel does that for us. That God gives us over to the gospel. Which shapes us. Which constrains us. And which trains us for righteousness. The hope to be changed and to be renewed into his image. Is to submit to the teaching which he gives us over to and there's an interesting thing there that you might expect that the teaching is given over to us. But Paul puts it the other way. We are given over to the teaching. The teaching and the standard and the pattern of doctrine in the gospel is the thing that trains us. Not that we use the gospel ourselves within our understanding, within our desires and our comfort to do that. That it's actually the teaching that is over us. We're handed over. And having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. We're not unowned. The process isn't to go from being a slave to sin to unowned, but there's a change of ownership. That's where we have to be careful maybe not to push the metaphor a bit too far because slavery might not be, in some ways, the ideal image of what life with Christ looks like, especially uh, you know, all, all of the sort of negative, abusive uh, sort of things that come with that imagery and that reality. That's why Paul tells us here, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Uh, it ought not be pushed too far. But you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So one of the ideas here for Paul is about the change of ownership. It's also the change of results in that ownership. 
this one pattern of ownership which has just led to impurity and lawlessness upon lawlessness. We know that to be true. We know that from experience. That sin has a way of drawing you in. Of pulling you deeper and deeper. That you need that little bit more to satisfy you more often. That it spirals and escalates. You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. But here's the contrast. Now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Our now leads to life and life in ever-increasing abundance. There's a change of ownership from sin to righteousness and a change of destination from lawlessness to sanctification, from lawlessness, from getting worse and worse and worse as we go on, to sanctification, being increasingly made more and more like God in his image. The word there, sanctification, is about being set apart for noble use. The easiest way to understand that is like, um, if you may be old enough, if this thing kind of still happens, uh, but you know, you have a best set of china. Uh, we don't in our house, but in my house growing up, we did. Uh, the floor of that being we, we, we basically never used it, uh, which seems a bit pointless. But the image here is of that best set, the set apart for the really sort of special guests, the special occasion. We're increasingly being set apart for good use. What you give yourself to owns you. There's a change of ownership there from sin to righteousness, a change of destination from lawlessness to sanctification and then lastly we see a different return how Paul might perhaps sort of put this is just to ask us the simple sarcastic very condescending question how's that working out for you uh, I don't know whether you managed to spend any time on Twitter I'm not on it but occasionally hear sort of about it uh, but one of the most ubiquitous uh, tweets it seems is simply to reply how's that working out for you to anything that goes wrong, uh, as if you must have known better right from the, the very beginning. But seemingly, it is the way to end any argument and probably any sort of friendship you might have had with the person you're talking with. But here, Paul turns the sass up on his readers. This is Paul's moment of asking the Romans, how did that work out for you? That is, your previous life, entrapped in sin, it might have seemed free, but how did it work out for you? What did you get out of it? What were you left with at the end of it? What return did it give to you? His point is that sin leaves you with nothing, but God gives you life. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were unbound. You were not enslaved, is literally the meaning there. When you were slaves of sin, you were free to a point. There's a sort of freedom to pursuing sin. You, you don't have to think about what's right. It's certainly not complicated. All that matters is what feels good, even though it leads to death. It's much, much simpler than trying to follow righteousness. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? How did that work out for you? What have you got now to show for the things that have only returned shame to you? They may have felt free at the time, 
but it's not rewarded you. Sin just brings shame. You're left feeling worse about yourself. You're left feeling more empty than you ever did. You're left feeling more alone than you did. You're left feeling more broken. There's a reality, though, that our culture wants to do away with shame entirely, doesn't it? It imagines that shame is always and only a bad thing. But it's worth saying there is a good kind of shame. There is a shame that is good because it comes because something was wrong. You feel shame because you should feel shame. Sometimes shame is your conscience. But the word there, ashamed, is interesting. It means disgraced and it means disgraced particularly when you realize you misplaced confidence you thought that something would be so good and it didn't deliver and you feel worse at the end of it and culture knows something of this don't like to be sort of uh, too stereotypical so every now and again throw your sort of Reference you might not be expecting, uh, Bridget Jones's diary. Uh, culture recognizes a bit of this truth that much heartbreak is really about the shame of misplaced trust. Is one example here. Uh, it's from the novel. I, I've still never watched the film. Uh, so there you go. The book is always better though, isn't it? So adds a, a little bit of class. Uh, It says here, sink into morbid, cynical reflection on how much romantic heartbreak is to do with ego and myth pride rather than actual loss. The sense of you feeling and looking a bit silly because someone you put so much hope in let you down more so than actually losing the person. We could make a slight change here actually to that quote and just say a lot of heartbreak not just romantic heartbreak, but a lot of heartbreak, a lot of the time. Of course, not all of the time. There's some heartbreak that's just pain and that is out of your hands. But much heartbreak is not so much the loss of the thing, but the realisation you put your hopes on the wrong horse. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end... The teleos, the result, the goal of these things is death. They always make you feel less alive, less human. And they cause you to do that to others too. They cause you to use others, to step over others, to hurt others, to ignore others' pain, to treat them as less human. And that inherits judgment and death in the end. But you also live in a sort of death right now. Less alive, less human, less free. And now Paul switches here to the good news. Now. And again, it's a statement, regardless of how you feel. It's a statement of truth, of fact, of what has happened. Now, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. God's ownership leads to being made more like him through life than eternal life. We often have that phrase, don't we? 
when we sin, when we fail. Well, I'm only human. As if that's the thing that unites us, that unites our experience. And in a way, there's a truth to that in that we all do experience failing. And it's something of a reality of the human life and existence. But it's completely wrong. In those moments, that isn't us being human. That's us settling for being less than human. Less than what God made us for. Less than what he designed us to be. But now you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's two different returns here. Sin never delivers. It never delivers its promises and it always leads to death. But God delivers what only he can and always leads to life. We're not saved by our works, by what we do, but despite them. And entirely through what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's the only way we could possibly be saved because until he does that, we're still enemies. We're still set against him. Paul's told us this in recent chapters. So if we're saved by grace alone, the question has been here, does it matter what we do now? We're saved? Yes, but should we pursue righteousness? Paul's point is to point us back to whose we are. I wonder if you can remember uh, the movie Toy Story 2 to give you a really brief plot story. This will spoil it if you've not seen it. Uh, but Woody's arm gets ripped and so he's put on the shelf and Andy gradually sort of forgets about him. And when he's spotted in the yard sale by a toy collector, he's added to a collection that's going to be sold to a museum for, for loads of money. And he's restored and repaired by that owner. And at first, Woody thinks this is great. He's being repaired, he's being looked after. Maybe this is the way that he can truly live, where he'll be looked after and looked at forever. Until Buzz Lightyear reminds Woody that a toy's true purpose is to be played with by a child. And so he has this amazing moment. He's been restored and repaired. He's been uh, a new paint job and everything. He's looking shiny. But he has this amazing moment where he scratches off the paint on his boot to reveal that Andy's name is still there. Woody has an epiphany. He remembers whose he was. He has an owner. He has a purpose. We can think that true freedom is to be able to go our own way, to answer to no one. But true freedom, true life, is to be owned, to be a child of the living God. We must remember whose we now are. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, it's on the one hand deeply challenging. It tells us deep things about who we are, how we live. And not all of that is comfortable. Not all of that is easy to confess. But Lord, each of us really knows in the depths of our 
hearts the power that sin has held at times in our life. The way in which it has directed our steps. That it has exerted control over us. The things that have promised so, so much have delivered so little. Things that we now look back on in embarrassment and shame. We wish we could undo. We wish we could redo. We know those feelings all too well. And so Lord, I thank you for the good news that we have now been set free from sin. We have now had all of that washed away and paid for by you giving your son to us. Coming and living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died that we might go free. And so Lord, we thank you for the truth of that. That we're no longer owned by sin, but we're owned by you. That we are your children. That above all other identities in this world we may have, we are your son, we are your daughter. Help us, Spirit, we pray, to remember whose we are and to live out of that truth. To live out of the truth of being a child of the living God, no longer enslaved to sin, but your servants, your children. No longer receiving death and shame, but now being made gradually more and more into your likeness, into who you made us to be, becoming more and more human and receiving eternal life through you. Spirit, I pray for those of us who know you and are trying to walk in light of your truth, that you would help empower us to to do that. And Lord, maybe for those who are not quite in that place yet, that Holy Spirit, you would do that work within those hearts. You would bring them from death into life, from one ownership to another, from shame into life. And from one degree of glory to another as we look upon you with unveiled faces. Your children whom you love enough to have given yourself for. We thank you for all that you are and all that you've done. And Spirit, just ask for your help. It is so, so easy to forget whose we are. But Lord, help impress that upon our hearts, we pray. That we might be a blessing to those that you've put us around this week, that we might be able to show hope of a better life found in you, hope of a better freedom and a freedom from shame. So we pray, Lord, you might work deeply within us for our good and for your glory, we ask it. Amen.